Hello, Sobertown. Welcome to the Sobertown podcast. Let's jump on that sober train and ride right into the incredible, wonderful world of sobriety. And this morning with me, I have Winged Victory, a.k.a. Wingy. And we're going to be talking a little bit about addiction, deaths in addiction, suicides in addiction, how it, it affects the survivors and the destruction that all this brings to to the families and the survivors. Hello, Wingy. Welcome again. Hi there. So today, you know, I sent you a message about we had a family friend. Their 20-year-old son died. My friend Annie, she found her son dead. And it and it from what I've been told, it was fentanyl. I put up a post about it, and I've been hearing a lot of other people talking about how they've found their family members or their family members have been found and how these individuals and their families are just the devastation. They're left alone to deal with the aftermath of the person that's, that's gone. You know, I'm going to interrupt you there because um, we were just talking before we started about all of the mentions of death in your community, in my community, in our community, in the last 24 hours, all the mentions of death or somebody moving toward death. And sometimes something comes up that isn't the thing that you really wanted to talk about, but you have to talk about it. And bells keep ringing. And you just rang a couple of bells with me. My brother was 19 and my mother's name is Anne and she found him and it wasn't fentanyl. It was aerosol inhalants, which in the 1980s, um, a lot of kids died from it was it was basically free it was a drug that you could find in the medicine cabinet in your bathroom um and my brother was addicted to it like a lot of kids were in the 1980s i didn't even realize that i knew he had a problem with drugs but i didn't i didn't know what the problem specifically was because i was kind of disassociated from that but i know that he did not intend to die he intended to get high and we don't have control over when it will kill us. And I think that, that oftentimes people think that they do, whether it's fentanyl, whether it's alcohol, whether it's heroin, whether it's cocaine, um, drugs kill, they, they kill. And I think that we, generally speaking, especially concerning alcohol, we tend to disassociate from that possibility as the drinking that I'm doing today could be the last drinking that I do. The drinking that I'm doing today could be the drinking that causes the car accident that kills the child. The drinking that I'm doing today could be the drinking that causes me to have a heart attack. It could be the moment that I trip over the line and the cancer cells begin to propagate. It's not something that we plan. We intend to numb the pain. We intend to treat ourselves. We intend to relax. We intend to escape. Very rarely do we actually intend to die. And a couple of times in the last 24 hours, a couple of people have reached out to me or have reached out to the community in a post saying, I have a friend, I have a brother, I have a sister who is trying to drink themselves to death. They don't care anymore. I can't reach them. And it's terrifying, really, because what happens is that the drugs work on your brain in a way that they take you to this place where you're completely lost. 
and nobody can reach you. And you know about that. You've been there and your brother was there also. And the question is, how do you reach people when they get to that point? Let's talk about your mom finding your brother. A dad. Well, we can try. I'm not sure how much of that I can do in a podcast, but we'll give it a try. Okay. Well, let's just talk <laughs> okay. a little. I mean, that, de- that devastated your mom. And Absolutely. Your Without family. question. Absolutely. Devastating. Yeah. Devastating. And somebody wrote about that in Boom This Morning. Um, in their life, that, that had happened um, with friends of theirs recently, and they were um, trying to wrap around um, the effect that that had on, on their friend's family. It is devastating. It is absolute. There's no way really of absorbing it, especially if it's someone who's so young, but even if it's not someone who's so young, because people as they're older have responsibilities and connections, people who rely on them, um, people who love them, you know, it, it's something that, that changes people's lives irrevocably. It's, it's, it is just not a small thing. You know, I think that we get so saturated in news of the opioid epidemic, opioid epidemic. Um, we don't even absorb really what it means that 3 million people around the globe die every year from alcohol related causes, whether it be dying from an overdose of alcohol, you know, acute alcoholism, liver disease, pancreatic cancer, any of the many cancers that, that alcohol causes, drunk driving, the driver or the passengers or the people in the other car. It's horrifying. And I, I think that heart attacks, strokes, brain damage, I, I think that it's, it's so horrifying that we become immune to the horror of it. We don't, we don't really absorb it anymore. And, and it's, it's actually unusual in our community because our, our community has such a kind of a bright side to it. You know, it's really about people reaching for hope, improving their lives and feeling really positive about going alcohol free, as opposed to focusing so much on the guilt that they feel about where they were when they were drinking. It's unusual to have a 24 hour period where there's so much talk of death. And there's been a lot of talk of death in the last 24 hours. Around um, our community, too. Yeah. Both a of lot. our communities. Yeah. They, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, I, we thought that my brother had committed suicide for a long time. And it wasn't until just a few years ago, actually, that some people in the community helped me understand that it, it, it wasn't suicide, but it was actually a drug overdose because of the drug paraphernalia that was on the, on the scene of where he died. But it's hard not to be angry and resentful of somebody when they take their own life and leave you behind. I guess it's interesting because I, I've never been suicidal and I was never, when I was young, I didn't do drugs. I didn't, you know, take a lot of that kind of risk. I always drank in a kind of a normal heavy drinker sort of way, but it's just, just kind of normal in your twenties to drink. I think that, you know, a few years before I stopped drinking, that was when my brain started taking me to that place where the idea of just drinking more and more and more to the point where I would just disappear into it. My brain started to want that. It was, it was something that I only felt when I was drinking. You know, you, can, you get to the point where you can actually feel the drug taking over if you do enough of it. 
And that's the point where, you know, you're right on the line where you can trip over either way. You can either say in your conscious moments, this is literally going to kill me. It's literally taking me. I'm literally losing to my, myself to this now. And I have to stop. Did or you, you feel, let it take you, you away. No, actually, I felt in those moments a sense of calm at the idea of floating away. I was literally taken by it. Literally. It was, you know, when I was drunk, there, there's like a, a point you get to. And, and I think that when people are talking about how can I reach this person who doesn't want to be reached in order to reach a person who doesn't want to be reached, it's not really that person that doesn't want to be reached. It's the way that the drug is acting on their brain, whether yeah. it's alcohol or heroin or, you know, and, and in order to get out of that sort of trance, because it's almost, you know, it's almost like a trance. You need to dry out a bit. <laughs> you need to stop for your brain to have a chance to start recovering. The only person who can do that is the person who's in the trance. They have to break themselves out of it. They have to fight their way out. It's very, very seductive. There's a, a wonderful article that's linked into one of my posts. And, and periodically people will, people will bring it up about, the origin of the word alcohol, it's from kind of supernatural, has sort of supernatural origins. I'll, I'll dig it up for you. You can post it in the link for the, after the podcast. But there is a side to what happens in your brain if you drink enough that is frighteningly sort of supernatural. You know, it really does start to take you over. It really does. I can tell you in my addiction when I was with methamphetamines, my hopelessness was so bad. And I mentioned this to somebody yesterday that I literally was ready to have court on the street. I, I felt there was no way out of my addiction for me. And I was on the run from the police because of drug arrests. And in my mind, there was no way out of it. And court on the street was the only thing that was left for me. And I carried a gun with me. And the day that they hit me with the undercovers, I happened to be standing, I had a lifted truck and I was standing on the tire. I left my gun inside the cab of the truck. Thank God, because in my mind, if they would have got me while I was in the truck and I, had, I was close to that gun, I would have used it that day because that was my mindset. And that was my hopelessness. And that was in my addiction because I was, I was high, high 24 hours a day. The alcohol was different. I, I woke up wanting to die every day and wanting to stop every day, but there was a different hopelessness in the methamphetamines and the alcohol. Then when I hear that the, the opioid hopelessness is the worst of all, I can't even imagine if it, that's worth worse than methamphetamines. They just want to die in their addiction because there's, there's no hope. How did you break out of it? With the methamphetamines, how did you break out of it? I eventually was arrested. And, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right? That'll do it. <laughs> well, they arrested me. I went to jail again then, but I got back out again. And then I got back into it. But the, uh, the federal marshals ended up pulling me out of a house. And in Towers Jail, I had this God moment. And from then, I've never gone back to methamphetamines. And I ended up going to prison again for a couple of years. And... I had this moment where three days I just had like these tears rolling out of my eyes, having flashes of my life, the destruction that I've been causing. And 
tears just rolling down. I didn't eat or anything for three days. And then I just, I remembered this one man, Walter Arnold, and how he loved God and he loved his wife. And I'm like, okay, God, I want what Walter has. If you're real, show me. And all of a sudden, it's just like I knew what I knew what I knew. And I just, right then I knew my life was going to change. So you were able to look at someone else and you were able to say, I want that. That gave you hope. It gave you like a beacon to focus on. Yeah, that's what we do. What a brilliant way to say that. That's when I, and I saw hope right there. You know, you need, you need to be able to see ahead of you and know that it's possible and that it's worth it. You know, and the, the having a beacon like that is so important. It sure it helped is. me. Yeah. It helped me so much to see people like me. You know, and I started working on an article yesterday to go with our podcast. I think I'm going to try to finish it up later. I got distracted because today's International Women's Day and I completely I forgot. That. I completely forgot until my husband said, Happy International Women's Day, honey. And I was like, oh shoot, it's the wrong post. Um, but I started writing a post about the deadly myth of high functioning alcoholism. And I'm not quite there yet. I haven't quite gotten it organized in a way where it, it proves its title. Um, But I think that we are too focused on believing that there's this sort of fine line between what it means to be high functioning and what it means to be alcohol dependent. And that we are going to know when we're about to trip over that line, <laughs> that, that somehow it's going to be identifiable, that it's almost too late. And I think for so many people, it's, it's not. They get too focused on still thinking, I'm high functioning. I'm getting my stuff done. So I'm okay for another day, you know? You can't see that line. And the line no, is you different can't. for- for everybody else. And you've got to hold on. You've got to stop drinking and just hold on. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So, and you know, was so- I was this morning, I was reading about these deaths. Okay. I was blown away. We hear so much about the fentanyl and the, the other drugs with lives lost. And I was looking it up. So here we are with the WHL 3 million deaths a year from alcohol. Then when you look at opioids, there's 500,000. So you go meet this arbitrary line, you cross it, you don't know it. Then you end up in this hopelessness. And then you either die by yourself or you die a slow death. And that's what you were talking about this morning with some of these people. How do I help these people that are slowly killing themselves? Or how do you help your friend or your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your parent when they're in that place and you see it happening? And you can't reach them because they've been taken over by this drug that is so seductive. It's so seductive. And, you know, I think I've done a lot of thinking since 2015 when I first read those statistics about the three million people dying a year of alcohol related causes as opposed to the 500,000 of opiates. And any death to to drug addiction is a waste of humanity. I think that with alcohol, more than anything else, we blame the victim and we glorify the drug. We glorify alcohol to such an extraordinary degree. You know, we, we blame the victim with cigarettes also, but we don't glorify cigarettes the way we used to. We used to glorify cigarettes. Now we don't. Right. You don't see everybody going to a smoking party 
you know, if you were, if you're from our generation, you and I are both 58, right? I don't know if you remember this, but my grandparents smoked in the car with the windows rolled up. They were constantly smoking in the house. People smoked in bed. People smoked in the line at the bank. People smoked all the time. It was like breathing, you know, and most adults, a lot of adults in the 1970s smoked. It was it was pretty normal for adults to smoke. You made ashtrays for your parents at school. You know, we made these little clay ashtrays with our fingerprints where the where you I put the cigarette. That. Yeah. And, you know, you made like you gave people crystal ashtrays for wedding presents or, you know, it it was just completely normalized, celebrated. And when people started talking about how you should quit smoking for health reasons and that became a thing, the idea of quitting smoking was like, how can you live without smoking? You're going to be so nervous. You're going to be so edgy. You, you have to have like these busy things to do with your hands all day long. And you're never going to be the same person that you were. There were so many myths surrounding the addiction that encouraged the addiction. And, and that's what we have now with alcohol. Yeah, we're kind of right there, aren't we? We're there. We are right there. Yeah. And if you go back and look at, at cigarette advertising and the history of cigarette advertising and you look at alcohol advertising, we're very much with alcohol advertising where we were in the 60s and 70s. With- well, I, I think the, the alcohol is even more insidious because they've actually gone in and they've convinced people, okay, well, even though it's a carcinogenic, it actually is heart healthy. Right? Yeah. This big, <laughs> huge lie with this J curve. And it's a lie. It's not heart healthy. Of course, we don't hear this, do we? Uh, is, well, is, we hear it because it's in the communities that we're talking in every day. But I think most people don't hear it. I think most people still think that wine is heart healthy and that the resveratrol in wine is is good for um, fighting cancer. You know, I've for the last five years, I've been reading all the studies that counteract those studies and the studies that they're that are coming out now that are legitimate are counteracting studies that were funded by the alcohol industry. I don't think the average person has that information. I think it trickles out now and then, but it's much more fun on social media to read about why alcohol is good for you than it is to read about why it's not. It's so, exactly you know, what we want to hear. Exactly. And, and what social media does is it, it takes these things that we want to hear and it feeds us more and more and more of that information. It so that's why it. we're doing what we're doing to try to yeah. start bringing more awareness. Todd in Australia, he's, he's 34 that writes a lot of the modules in Silvertown, he believes this is going to change one day, like on cigarettes. He believes it's going to happen one day. I hope so. That would be great. You know, I having lived through the 70s as a child watching the adults around me smoke, and then having lived through the 90s as a young woman who was becoming a problematic drinker, I would love it if it changed. But I remember, I remember what happened with cigarettes was very specifically focused on second when they proved that secondhand smoke caused cancer, not just the smoker, but was affected by the cigarettes, but the people around them were affected by the, by the smoke and cigarettes. That's when things really started to shift because then the innocent bystanders, see, we always blame the addict. If you become addicted to something, it's your fault. If you become addicted to something, it's because you made the choice to use it and use it again. And it was in that choice to use it again that you became addicted, whether it's heroin, whether it's nicotine, whether it's alcohol, whether it's opiates, we blame the victim always. The thing is with smoking, 
when they were able to prove that secondhand smoke put the people around the smoker at risk, then the cigarettes became the villain, not the smoker. Right. So, it, you know, cause we, we could, we could vilify the cigarettes. And I think with, with alcohol, unless there's a campaign about violence caused by alcohol, um, accidents caused by alcohol, that's really powerful and effective. And, I, and I, I don't, don't even think those are included with the three million deaths right here. I don't know. Yeah, I've always I don't know what those statistics are. I've, I've read those We're statistics have to research many that. times. Yeah. yeah, I don't think they include everything because there are a lot of deaths that are caused by alcohol that are not necessarily attributed to alcohol, heart attacks, strokes, cancers. So it could, it could be even way higher than that. It probably is much higher than that. Yeah, it probably is much higher than that. And the thing is, you know, what we get wrapped up in is thinking that we need to drink, just like people used to think that they needed to smoke. It was you just assumed that adults, especially adults that had high stress jobs or adults that were kind of stressing people, they needed to smoke. And I think that now we have that attitude about alcohol. We've been taught to believe that you need to drink to relax. You need to drink to parent well, which is incredibly ludicrous. But I bought that. You well, know, I bought that tar- targeting women right there. Yeah. Women. Yeah. It definitely targets women that that campaign. They made it a little more egalitarian a few years back and they, they had a wine called Mommy's Time Out and then they added Daddy's Daddy's Time Out. So they've got two wines, you know, one for the daddies and one for the mommies. What do we tell people that they're wanting to communicate with someone they love that's drinking themselves to death? I'll tell you what. um, I know that there's there's a point of no return for reaching someone. I've seen it too often to delude myself into thinking that there's not a point of no return. I think that at some point, you know, you really... I think the best way that you can reach someone is to live alcohol free yourself and set the example of doing that, being fulfilled and happy. Because I, I know that for many years when I was trying to stop drinking, when I, when I thought it would be you know, beneficial in my family that I stopped drinking, I didn't know how to live without alcohol. It was something that everyone, all the adults that I had ever been exposed to, except maybe one or two drink is just a normal part of life, you know, and I, I couldn't wrap around how do you live without drinking? It seemed like it seemed like it would be a life with kind of a vacuum in there somewhere. And the only way that I could understand how to do that was to do it. In doing it, I set an example for my family that this is not just possible, but preferable. I'm happier. I'm more fulfilled. I'm more relaxed. I'm a better parent. I'm a better spouse. I'm a better daughter. I'm a better friend. Everything. So um, I think it does come around to being a lighthouse because yeah. when you wanted to get out of drinking, you, you read that one book. You found that one author that really resonated with you. I had Walter. It was the first Arnold, one. Yeah. I had Walter Arnold in the beginning that got me off meth. And eventually the I Am Sober community, when I got into that community, I saw others with success. And that helped me get out of my my last addiction with alcohol. That's a really the, the question you asked was, how do you reach someone? And what you're saying, and I remember feeling like 
the only way out would be going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember feeling like that for a long time. And I, I couldn't wrap around that. That wasn't something that I wanted to do. And in 2015, 2014, there weren't the kinds of options that we have now. There are so many communities out there, so many, and they have you know different personalities. There are lots of different online communities. There are lots of different live communities. And I think that maybe the best thing to do if you've got somebody you love who you feel is trapped in this thing is to try to help them see that there are a lot of different ways to deal with it. If they'll listen to you, if you can, they don't have to go to an in-person meeting. Yeah. And I'll give you, I, I did a, I did a post in December that had a list of online communities that have helped people in boom and live communities. And it has like, you know, 15 different things. I'll give that article to you to link up at the end of this. Okay. And it's not even everything, you know, there's so much, there's so many options out there. And I think you have to have community of some kind, you know, maybe AA is the community that's going to work for you, but maybe it's not. And that's okay. With me, it's not with my son. It is. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. And when it works for people, it's fantastic. You know, if AA works for you, great. It does not work for me at all. But luckily, I was able to find something that did. There's so many options out there now. You know, while we're immersed in this culture where we encourage everybody to drink, we make everybody feel like they need to drink. We make everybody feel like if they don't drink, there's something wrong with them. And when people become addicted, then we call them diseased and we send them to rehab for thousands and thousands of dollars. We're talking about the matrix. (laughs) Yeah, the matrix, Maggie's matrix. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, we're still immersed in that culture. Something really, really positive that's happening is there are all these different communities that are sprouting up on the internet and and also off the internet. Because I would have never found the communities I found, I, I don't think, without COVID. And then just the way that they're branching out online right now yeah because even with sober town we have two uh rewired zooms going on a week there where people are connecting yeah. with zooms yeah and that's that's fantastic and you know and the thing is that all of the different communities have different personalities there's so many of them now there's really no way that you're not going to find one that'll work for you if you reach right. out and and try to find one and i i think that when people are in that really dark place They need to talk to other people who have been there because the only person who understands what it feels like to be there and how to get out is someone who's been there. So if, if you've never been there and you're trying to reach someone who's there, you're not going to be able to reach them, but maybe somebody else can. One of the things that I'm working on right now, it's just absolutely exhausting. And it's another matrix is I'm trying to set up an online store for boom. And because I'm not a tech person, um, the hoops that I'm jumping through trying to do this are just absolutely dizzying and I'm totally exhausted and everything's going wrong and eventually we'll get there. Some things are going right. But one of the things that we're going to have in our store is we have an artist in Boom who created these fantastic images. They look like Monopoly, Monopoly cards and they're really bright and they're really colorful. And they say, if you've ever... And then there's an experience that, you know, we, we did a post where everybody said, if you've ever boom, 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 you ought to go to boom. And it's like, if you've ever been embarrassed by what's in your recycling bin, you got to go to boom. And then there's, you know, the boom at the bottom. So one of the things that I'm doing for the store is I'm making business cards out of these. And the idea is you've got 10 of these in your pocket 
and you're in the liquor department in the grocery store and you drop one off next to the whiskey, whiskey and you just keep walking, you know, <laughs> right, somebody, right. you know, and so there are a lot of creative ways to get the word out. And I think that people are getting more and more creative about it. There are a lot of entrepreneurs online who, because they're entrepreneurs and they are selling a book or they're selling a product, they're doing an amazing job of getting the word out. There are a lot of communities that formed as kind of an alternative to AA that are really vibrant. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of help out there. There's a lot of help out there and, and it, we need each other and we gotta, we gotta help each other find each other. I think the best that we can. You know, and I want to also talk to the person that's stuck in uh, that mindset right now and yeah. is lost in their addiction that's thinking that they're lost in their hopelessness, that death is their only way out. Not only do they destroy themselves, but they're destroying everybody that they're living behind. And yeah. I hope that really resonates with them. It's just a shame with the destruction that I've just seen over the last like you said, 24 hours, 48 hours with the people that are, that are left behind. And years later, too, with my brother, it's 10 years and I still feel it. And my mom still feels it. Our whole yeah. family still misses my brother and yeah. you with your brother, too. Yeah, it was the, the first 10 years, the first 10 years. It was like this thing that defined me. The first 10 years are the hardest. And I think it really did define me. I was 17 when he died. And for those first 10 years, at some point in, in you know, the first minute of meeting a new person, I would bring it up. It literally defined me. It was who I was, the, a survivor of, at that point, I thought it was suicide, but ultimately I understood that it wasn't. Thing is, what you just said about if you're in that dark place, thinking about the effect that your absence will have on the people that you leave behind. What I realized when I learned that my brother didn't actually commit suicide, but died getting high was that he didn't intend to leave this void in our lives. He didn't intend to die. He intended to get high. And what getting high is about is feeling better, feeling good, being happy, right? He intended to escape momentarily. My mom had taken me to school. I was starting university. We were gone for the weekend, and then she was going to go on a little road trip for the first time in forever. And he was home alone. And I, you know, I remember when I stopped drinking, being home alone was the hardest time for me not to reach for what I was accustomed to reaching for whenever I was alone, which was my escape, right? Um, nobody will know I'm home alone. I can escape as much as I want to. He was home alone and he escaped. It was just recreational. I think that the thing that it took me until I stopped escaping to understand was that I didn't need to escape. That if I didn't have the drug that was making me miserable in my brain, I didn't need to escape. And the only way I learned that was to stop escaping. I guess what I would say, what I would say is, I, I mean, I, th I, I think... I find that if the focus is on you're hurting other people or you will hurt other people, it makes you want to escape, right? And if, 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 you're, if, if your way of escaping is to use the drug, 
that's what you're going to reach for. So I, I think it's the beacon. I think it's the hope. You were talking about the man that you saw who you wanted to live that life. You wanted to have that life. And that's what got you off the methamphetamines was seeing the beacon. It comes down to that again. Yeah. The beacon. You, yeah. That it's not, it is not that you are miserable. It is not that life is miserable. It's that your brain is fucked by the drug. Yes. Whether it's alcohol, whether it's methamphetamines, whether it's heroin, whether it's nicotine. I mean, you know, nicotine, we think of nicotine as a soft drug. It took me forever to quit smoking. And then it took me forever to feel okay after I quit smoking. But finally, two years later, I feel so much better as a non-smoker, settled, relaxed, at peace, not needing cigarettes. Any addictions they've shown causes this hopelessness. Look at gambling. You know, you're lying, hiding, cheating stealing you're doing oh, gambling's hideous it's a horrible addiction oh god and that yeah and that's you know that's it's also advertised everywhere you'll drive along the expressway and you'll see the sign for the casino and then the sign for the 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 beer or the sign for the alcoholic seltzer and then you'll see the sign for the marijuana and you know it's just escape 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 and you know everyone wants to have fun right everyone wants to feel good but the problem is that Once you trip over into the addiction, once you trip over into using the drug, whether the drug is the dopamine released from the gambling or whether the drug is the chemical reaction of the alcohol in your brain or whether the drug is marijuana or whether the drug is opiates or methamphetamines, once you start doing it routinely, then you have to escape or you're miserable. And it's just such a catch-22. And the only way to get out of it is to stop. And the way to stop is to find beacons. And the way to find beacons is in these communities. You know, whether it's AA, Smart Recovery, Life Ring, Women for Sobriety, Annie Grace, whether, you know, wherever it is, online, in person, in a church basement, in a school, you know, wherever it is, find your beacons. You know, we're out there. We're out there. And and the people who have gotten out of this, you know, we want to be beacons because because it's such a huge revelation to break out of that addiction to come out the other side. You know, I can't bring back the people who are dead. You know, one of the first things I asked my wife, because our friends live in California and, you know, sober town has only been going for a year. I'm not in contact with them. Like I used to be. And I was like, do they know about sober town? My mind is starts thinking right away. What could have I done more to let them know about Sobertown, to make a difference for Boo. You know, that's where my mind went right away. We are like that when, and when they start sitting home, because we just last year we had a friend of mine, Dawson, he broke his sternum. He, he was a heroin addict, he, he got sober, and he went through rehab with a friend of mine, Matt, and my brother years ago. He cleaned off the heroin, turned his life around, reconnected with his family, remarried, made all these changes in his life. He broke his sternum. They gave him opioids for the pain. He got addicted to the opioids again. He went to get out the opioids. He couldn't. He tried really hard. And then he fell into that hopelessness. One morning, he took a shotgun and blew his head off. Oh. We lose people that way, too, in in this addiction. So Well, and you know, the thing... I hate to say this because I bang this term a lot, but it all boils down to, you know, with that kind of thing, it all boils down to people making money. And the opioid, the opioid epidemic originated with this pharmaceutical company knowing that they were recommending to doctors to prescribe these opioids at an addictive level. They knew 
that they were doing that. You know, it was like the perfect scam that they would they would have the doctors prescribe the opiate opiate at this level that is addictive and then the patients would become addicted and then we blame the addict right you know why can't you break out of the addiction well i think they even convinced these weren't even addictive they convinced everybody that too yeah and you know it's interesting because i i read the article in the atlantic about that i'll i'll give that to you too if you don't have it but it's a really really well done long article i love about you you've got over 900 articles Got lots of resources in my head. Yeah. You know, everything that I read on this for a long time just kind of stuck with me. But there, there's also a fantastic documentary on on the opioid epidemic that that follows the same research that's in this article in The Atlantic. But, you know, basically, the I believe I don't want to say this wrong. I think it was the Sackler family, but I'm, I'm not I don't remember for sure. So that's not don't you know, it's in the article. We'll see. What happened was there was eventually a lawsuit suing the pharmaceutical company that and holding them responsible. They lost the lawsuit. They were forced to pay, you know, millions and millions of, if not billions in damages. But they are so tremendously wealthy that it was just kind of a, a bounce, you know, tennis ball off the wall. And then they they started selling, I believe, in China or something like that. So even when these corporations are held accountable even when they're punished for addicting us to something new, uh, it's just a drop in the bucket. It doesn't even really affect them. So I think that, you know, I, the first few years that, that I was writing about this stuff and thinking about this stuff and trying to make a difference by, you know, speaking out loud, speaking my truth kind of thing. I realized that it really is the marketing of addiction is a Goliath. It is. And the way to fight that Goliath is to be the beacon. And if you can be the beacon for one person, you're fighting the Goliath. You know, we have to, we have to take this down one person at a time. And a lot of that, a lot of the time, that's us at home around our family. Mm -hmm. That's where it it starts first being the beacon for our family. Because I know just changing uh, with my drinking, this last, even before getting off the meth, amphetamines, that changed everything back then. And then I got lost in the drinking again, and then getting sober again has changed everything again. Just me alone, with you alone. I, who knows how many of your family members uh, know? They know what you do, right? They do. I'll tell you what. You know, I used to share uh, the Huffington Post stuff on my personal Facebook page. After the first couple of articles, which were very personal, it was terrifying, really. I, I started publishing stuff in Huffington Post when I was a year sober as a result of that Dr. Oz letter that we'll talk about another time. Okay. And the first two things coming out sober and redefining me time were deeply personal. It was the first time that I really told everybody I'm sober, you know, and it was on my one year soberversary. And, and I not only told everybody I was sober, I told everybody that I had been a drunk and they didn't know. You know? And right. it, it was, it was terrifying because I, I shared, I shared those on my Facebook page, which has, you know, like all my kids, friends and their parents and their teachers and, you know, everyone at work and all, you know, it's, you know, like 1000 friends kind of people you don't know kind of thing. And for a while, you know, everyone is super supportive for a while. I continued to share those Huffington Post articles. And I was really, 
I was really into it. You know, it was really important to me to make a difference. And I realized that my friends didn't want to hear about it. They didn't want to think about it. They don't want you bothering them with why you're not drinking. They don't want to be preached to. And that's fine. That's not the audience that I need to reach because I need to reach, I need to reach the people who don't know me because the people who know me start to take it personally. They start to feel like I'm nagging them. You know, it's not about them. It's about my experience. And if it's, if it's delivered on this level, that's, that's friend to friend, you say it once and you've said it. You know, you don't need to, if you keep saying it, then it starts to feel like you're in their face. And so I I started to find that kind of demoralizing. So the way that I reach out now is doing the best job that I can to promote Boom through Booze Musings, which means I publish something every three days. And, you know, I try to get as many hits as I can. And that means people find us. And every day, a few more people find us. These are people who don't know me. It's not personal. I'm not, you know. You found me. Exactly. And the thing with these cards that I was telling you about, this is the product in our store that I'm the most excited about. It's the reason I want the store is because when, when artists in our community made these cards, he said, you know, I, I was in the liquor store today and I saw this guy walk up to a bottle of whiskey and he picked the bottle of whiskey up and he looked at it and then he put it down and he walked away and then he came back and he picked it up again and he looked at it and I could tell he was really struggling You know, he wanted that whiskey, but he didn't want that whiskey. And I just wanted to walk up to him and hand him a card that said, you got to go to boom. You know, (laughs) it's like, oh, my God, that's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. You know, because I, I don't think that you can deliver this message in a way that is I think it has it. It has to be impersonal. You know, it has to be. So we have to be we have to be like the lighthouse that is stationary. It doesn't move. It, and it just stands there and shines its light. It has to be the lighthouse that you can see, but it doesn't see you. How's that? There does you that go. make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, because the problem with throwing all this stuff at my friends and family every couple of days, they feel like it's personal on some level. They feel like I'm trying to reach them as the people I know. It needs to be impersonal. It needs to be, you need to be there. You need to be visible, but it needs to be the guy walking by in the street who's looking for a lighthouse that sees you. Because I was just on a Zoom the other day with uh, with a wife talking how miserable she is seeing her husband drinking himself to death and doesn't know what to do. And even then I told her, well, the only thing that I know that you can do is be a lighthouse. Perfect. But, But you have to be a lighthouse without... Pointing the finger. Without making a big shining, shining the light on them specifically. Yeah. Shine, yeah. Yeah. Just shine the light. Don't shine it on people. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Shine the light where people can see it. And if they want to walk toward it, they will. And if they don't want to walk toward it, there's not a thing you can do about it. You know? And I think people dealing with grief who they've lost, there's communities out here that they can plug into for that too. And talk yeah, about absolutely. it. And don't yeah. just bear the burden yourself because yeah. there's a lot of us out here. I just could not believe the other day when I put two different posts up about boot dying and I could not believe the response I got back with people did have lost somebody themselves. You know, I think there's something too that 
is a problem that's peculiar to alcohol, which is that a lot of people can drink very, very heavily their whole lives and not die of it. Maybe when they're in their 80s, they have a heart attack or a stroke or an amputation or something like that. But they live their lives. They live long lives. You know, maybe in their 80s, they have cancer, which they might have had for many reasons. And you don't know that it's alcohol. But I mean, this was this was something in my family that was quite common. People who can handle it. Heavy, heavy drinkers living into their 80s, late 80s. And I think that we, that we see that and people think I can get away with it one more time, one more day, one more bottle. Well, it's that not death it, in your face like fentanyl. Right. Because exactly. We don't have drinking. We don't have to. We know we're going to usually wake up in the morning. Fentanyl, right. you don't. And that's what I just had Scott from Transitions Sober Living on yesterday. And he was talking about that back in our days. We didn't have to worry about that. We knew we were going to wake up tomorrow and you don't know that today. But see, I get to the point where I was wondering if I would, because, you know, I think I got to the point where I was blacking out. And when I was blacking out, I wasn't in control of what I was doing and I was falling down and that kind of thing. I would drive to the gas station to get more wine and I would be just completely trashed. So I think that I think that it's an illusion to say, I know I'm going to wake up tomorrow because that the problem is, I think that we see so many people abuse alcohol and wake up tomorrow. It's such a common thing to abuse. So many people drink too much. It's just kind of normal, you know? So you don't see it as it's funny, right? Oh, so-and-so got so drunk last. Oh my gosh. They were so hysterically. They were falling down and oh my gosh, you know, it's really deadly shit. Well, this fentanyl, they're putting it in the marijuana. They're putting it in the cocaine. They're putting it in the methamphetamines. We're going to see a lot more of it. But this fentanyl is, I think, a whole different animal than, than all of it because they're mixing it up. They're cutting it or whatever. And you just don't know if you're going to get a part they didn't mix correctly. And then that's oh, terrifying. Yeah. yeah, that is absolutely terrifying. So the moral of the story, be a spotlight. you don't need any of that stuff. <laughs> you don't need it. You don't need any of it. What you need to do is find your beacon, wherever that may be. And there are lots of them out there. I will give you, I will give you that post that has all the communities in it that I did in December. Okay. okay. You'll, you'll give us the links like you do. Every yeah, other I'll give week. you some links. Yeah. I, I love Get it because links for you. there's great links in the blurb, everybody. That she Great links in the blurb. We'll yeah. do the opioid article from the Atlantic and we'll do the documentary on opioids and we'll do the article on the alcohol ghoul, which is such a good one and some other stuff. So I wrote a few things down as we were talking awareness and education are really huge. Helping people connection is, is probably right up there is number one, getting connected, be a lighthouse without shining your light on anyone. Yeah. Be a lighthouse and look for your lighthouse. Look for your lighthouse because there are a lot of them out there. This has been amazing. Tell everybody about Booze Musings. Booze Musings, well done. You can find Booze Musings by simply going to your Google search bar and typing in Booze Musings. You can find Boom Rethink the Drink the same way. Just Boom Rethink the Drink. Uh, They are 
both quite easy to access that way. www. etc. But you can just type in booze musings or boom, we think the drink. And then there's the I am sober community. And then there's the this naked mind community right off the top of my head. Find yourselves a community, get connected and be a lighthouse. Wingy, it's been great. It's great talking to you. You have an amazing day. And remember, everybody, pour the poison down the sink. You have a saying that you like to say, too, though. Well, I have a few. Well, give us one. Well, see, today is International Women's Day. So break the status quo. Open your mind to the possibilities. Rethink the drink. The spirit is not in the bottle. It's in you. Boom. Boom. That one. There you go. <laughs> okay. That's my favorite, too. All right. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And we will see you next time.